This is Financial Standard, the definitive source of news, thought leadership and analysis for Australian wealth management professionals. Financial Standard. Take the lead. Welcome to the Financial Standard Podcast. I'm your host and Managing Editor of FS Sustainability, Rachel Allenbackis. In this episode, brought to you by MFS Investment Management, we'll be discussing decarbonization and how a net zero strategy can be used to communicate not only investment strategies, but also a narrative belief to key groups, including clients, super fund members, investee companies, governments, and regulators. MFS President Carol Jeremiah explains why the fund manager wrote a decarbonization manifesto and how it is used by the portfolio manager to guide investment decisions and the way they talk about climate systemic risks and opportunities. And so as we thought about the manifesto um, and climate manifesto, decarbonization manifesto, it was really just to put in concrete words our efforts around our commitment to reducing uh, climate emissions and making sure that there's consistency across the entire investment department. And what, what we really see is, is that we have a unique position to be in as an uh, active manager and in impacting uh, many of the companies that, that we hold inside the portfolios. So it was so important for us, again, to put that in writing. Um, have that consistency across the investment department and acknowledge our influence uh, that we have in, in owning these companies on behalf of our clients and our clients care. So uh, again, having them see in writing our commitment to it as well. How does this manifesto uh, then become integrated into the way that MFS invests money on behalf of clients, Carol? You know, I think one of the most important things about uh, climate change and, and thinking about the impact virtually to every business that, that is around the world, uh, especially in the public markets, it's affecting all of them. And so as you think about their future and their ability to generate returns, um, to be competitive, um, to serve their broader communities, uh, climate has a huge impact in their ability to do that. So as we think about our investment process, um, we really think about uh, getting at these issues, the environmental issues, the social issues, and the governance issues from an integrated approach to our investment process versus it as a separate product. And so that is integrated into the analysis that we do as we look at companies all around the world and as we collaborate around that information, and then ultimately as we decide what companies to own and what not to own um, in our portfolios. And then as owners, we want to make sure that we engage in those companies in three ways. First, we want to understand the disclosure and the information about where they stand today in their climate journey and, and how they anticipate transitioning and changing. Um, we want to understand the plans they have in place, their strategy, uh, their scenario planning, and how it will impact their business. And then finally, we want to be able to partner, but also hold these companies accountable um, for action and for change. Um, and we recognize, again, that this is something that will take time, but we think very much as responsible owners, it's a part of what we do as long-term investors. 
You recently said that MFS's approach to systemic risks like climate change falls into a constructivism approach. Can you elaborate about that? Um, and I was really fascinated by this distinction um, around constructivism because it I find it's a really interesting way to think about the ways in which uh, investors act, uh, which is which is always useful from an editorial analytical perspective. You know, I guess this is what does make us different. Um, there's a lot of different ways to engage uh, with companies on big issues, and especially around climate, something that actually is very complicated and um, in many instances long term. And as long-term investors, we do like to think about our active approach, but it's very much more as a partnership in owning businesses because we understand that to put pressure on them in a short-term way like activists do in the engagement process, that's more about delivering short-term returns, um, pressuring companies to do things quicker than Mm. actually we believe is responsible. And constructivism is a whole different approach, which is about understanding, as I said earlier, the business well, understanding and knowing management, understanding their products, their competitors, their environment, and um, also understanding what a transition pathway might look like and how long it might take. And so when we think about the decisions that companies have to make around net zero commitments and targets, we're thinking about not just a two, three, five years out, we're thinking about three, five, 10, 15, 20 years out and mm-hmm. ensuring that they're really putting together long-term plans in place so that some of the short-term pressures that they're going to feel actually don't k- take them off course to really achieving net zero by 2050. Mm-hmm. So again, we think constructivism is a much more productive way and it's, it's our approach as an active manager because we're in a unique position knowing the company is the way we do. One of the things that really interests me is how decarbonization manifestos, net zero statements and targets um, are used not just necessarily as a framework for investment decision making, but also as a tool of communication and, and driving narration um, with, with various stakeholders along the value chain. Carol, since MFS has created the and, and established this decarbonization manifesto, how have you been able to use it um, as a tool of engagement, not just with your investee companies, but also with your clients, uh, with governments and regulators, um, with you know within networks and collaborative engagements like the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative? And is it a useful tool for driving that communication around MFS's purpose? What a great question. I can't tell you how important it is to not only be concrete about your commitments, have it in writing, have your plan, uh, have the governance structure over it, but whatever accountability we're holding on investing companies inside our portfolios, we are also got to have to hold ourselves accountable for the same thing as a company. Mm -hmm. And so using the framework of, of not only the, the manifesto, but also the things that we're laying out very concretely as it relates to engagement and what does engagement look like, and the stories that we can communicate to investors to really show them what we mean by engagement. Because proxy voting is a piece of engagement, but it's only mm-hmm. actually a small piece of a much broader, wider, informal, and formal process of engagement with companies. 
and as I described, constructivism. But the other thing that has been extremely powerful about our approach, and, and it, it feels like we're going against the grain quite a bit because so many organizations are taking the exclusion road or they're building product just to sort of package conveniently in a product versus what we think is sometimes harder to explain, but we think feel it's the right road. We've had a lot of engaged conversations with regulators um, and as they've engaged us to understand why we're doing it differently, it's amazing to see the light go on and they start to realize that what we're doing in the engagement process and um, working closely with companies to understand what's going to be involved to help them make this transition, they mm. need to have great long-term investors that are willing to commit the capital long enough for this change to actually be done well. And regulators are starting to really see that. So as an example, as the SEC here in the United States just announced mandatory, a proposal of mandatory disclosure mm -hmm. for all U.S. and uh, public companies mm -hmm. that are trading um, on the U.S. exchanges to disclose um, their climate risks very clearly. And they lay it out in a 500-page document. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been talking to lots of clients. I've been in the academic world with this conversation to educate people that we're happy about those regulatory disclosures. Mm -hmm. And the reason we're happy about them is because it provides consistency. It allows companies to get around a framework that isn't coming from a million different angles um, mm -hmm. and a way for us to get consistent standards that will help both public companies report, but then for us to also analyze and research. And mm -hmm. so one example, like I said, is, is interfacing with the SEC and, and giving them a lot of feedback on what that, those disclosure requirements should look like. We're even pushing for mandatory disclosure um, in scope three wow. uh, data. And then the last example I'll use is even the European regulatory changes that are quite distinct and, and, mm -hmm. and quite a hard, high bar. For us, again, our approach was to lay out over a long period of time uh, our engagement strategy um, mm -hmm. as it relates to how we will buy and sell companies and then how we will engage them in responsible ownership. And again, we sat, sat with the European regulators to explain our approach and why it's different than exclusion. And I can only tell you that they were incredibly encouraged about our mm. approach. Yeah. Um, and, uh, again, and felt, felt that we were really, um, approaching it uniquely. The interesting thing about, uh, decarbon these decarbonization plans is that, you know, they sort of signpost the long-term goal of decarbonization net zero by 2050 or carbon neutrality by 2050. Uh, but it's sometimes interesting to ask, what do you personally foresee? What would you like to see as we start hitting some of these interim targets, you know, 2025, 2030, 2040? What would you like to see MFS look like in terms of its, the way it engages with companies and with other stakeholders, the portfolios that you manage and the decisions that get made um, on these major signposts towards 2050? I actually think the opportunity is so enormous. Um, I think there will be a lot of investment returns made in the transition of companies completely disrupting their business models 
uh, reinventing themselves, transitioning themselves in ways they could never have imagined, and um, creating innovation that, again, will create long-term value. Our job is not to be late. Our job is not to follow the herd. Our job is to identify signals that other people can't see, other investors can't see, because we're long-term investors. And so it, it's not only exciting, and we know how complicated it is, but, but we believe that the opportunity uh, to get in front of it and get in it early, um, and, and a lot of people are referring to understanding the browning to the green, right, mm -hmm. um, in, in watching companies transition. Mm -hmm. And as we talk to companies and as they think about their future, being alongside them as long-term investors and committing capital much longer than most investors to watch this innovation and change take place, I think is one of the most exciting opportunities for us as an active manager. Carol Jeremiah, MFS Investment Management. How do asset owners like super funds use their decarbonization targets to guide their actions? Unisuper Governance and Sustainability Manager Sybil Dixon explains that the $95 billion Superfund's net zero target is grounded in their role as a fiduciary, and it is used to communicate the how as much as the why to their internal and external fund management teams and their members. From Unisuper's perspective, we've been looking at how we, our exposure to climate risks for a number of years. So we had a very good understanding of sort of how our portfolio was positioned. We'd started reporting to members with our annual climate risks and our investment report. However, we were recognising that that wasn't enough for um, many of our members as we had a um, divestment campaign run against Unisuper by one of the activist groups. So we recognised there was a gap in our communication strategy and our strategy to consider climate risks in our investments. So we didn't think divestment was the best approach to manage climate risks in our investments across our portfolio, as we already had some options for members where they could choose not to invest in fossil fuels if they wished. But we realised there was something lacking in our approach that kind of gave a bit of forward direction and support for, say, the Paris Agreement. We'd seen huge levels of support at an international level with various different governments signing up to net zero targets across the globe. And then we were also seeing technology shifts that meant the technology to decarbonise was becoming ever cheaper. So we recognise that actually at a portfolio level, we could commit to net zero by 2050, as we saw that, you know, there was huge amounts of pressure, both politically and technologically, that would kind of make it more likely than not that we might be able to achieve that objective. And if the world was getting to that, then our portfolios as a whole would not be compromised by, you know, portfolio selection processes to get to that aim as well. So by having that in mind, we recognise we could set a net zero by 2050 target and that because of the overarching sort of decarbonisation theme, it nested quite well with our fiduciary duty. We thought we could not be ignorant of the shift to a zero carbon economy for our portfolio. And it was a nice way that we could integrate, you know, our approach to climate change, managing climate change risks, but also having a quite a positive narrative around the work that we were doing through engagement with the companies that we're investing in. 
but also that could have a wider policy lens as well. So I think from that perspective, we, we were trying to do a number of things with the targets, but at the end of the day, really what we're trying to do is have a positive, constructive, forward-looking conversation with the companies that we invest in, but also with our members about the work that we're doing to try to reach net zero by 2050. So in order to support that, we also needed some targets and also thinking about the activities and actions that we would do that would get us um, to that position. Whenabouts did this start, Sybil? Um, you know, obviously you sort of centered this in, you know, uh, events like having a divestment campaign conducted against you, but when did this process really begin? As I said before, we've been looking at climate risks in our investments for quite a long period of time. I think the first carbon footprinting exercise that was done at Unisuper would have been done, I think, prior to 2010. Um, and that was done for our balanced option and for our defined benefit. So, and we periodically undertaken that exercise. So we sort of had a fairly good understanding of where the material carbon exposures were in our portfolio. We undertook our first TCFD aligned report in 2018 which we published to members um, on our website. So that was a sort of high level um, report on the climate risks in our investment. But the thing that was missing from that portfolio, so while it was a comprehensive look at the risks in the portfolio, it didn't necessarily, we hadn't set targets for our portfolio because we weren't necessarily comfortable putting in place targets that may compromise our ability to achieve the best returns for members because that's really our guiding star it was that we really take our responsibility in looking after our members retirement savings very seriously and we didn't necessarily have the comfort to set targets at that point in time and then in 2020 um, so it was January 2020 following the bushfires uh, where that divestment campaign was run. And so we took a step back and we thought about, as I said, how we could tie our fiduciary duty, but also communicate some aspect of advocacy for decarbonisation by mm. setting a target. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we found um, the idea of setting a net zero target quite effective because, you know, it's technology agnostic it allows for us, and so, sorry, I will say, our short-term target at the time was to have our top 50 Australian investments set Paris-aligned operational targets as well, because we thought it was really helpful if we could work with all of the companies that we, like, especially our larger holdings that we invest in, we could talk to a common vision of the future. And while that tar target that we asked for was essentially at a minimum, to set a net zero target for your operations. It was an important sort of first step in working with those companies to set more ambitious targets to sort of just get everyone on the same page as this is the world that we're looking for. We're looking for rapid decarbonisation. How are you positioning your business and your activities to align with that? And so that was sort of a way that we could kind of, again, tie that sort of fiduciary duty and those climate targets to sort of hopefully construct something that allows us to also talk to our members about these activities and actions that we were taking. Sybil, just to finish this conversation off, um, the next big interim target for, for most organizations that are on the net zero pathway uh, is 2025. Um, casting your mind ahead, where would you like to see Unisuper positioned as a universal owner, 
uh, as a steward for the retirement, long-term retirement benefit of its members if we're looking ahead to 2025? I think by 2025, what I'd like to see, and this again leverages on this sort of idea of our top 50 companies and the engagement work that we do, which is cl- clearly the area where we feel like we've got the most influence. We want to have all of those companies have essentially a Paris aligned business strategy. So not just how their operations are going to decarbonize, but a good idea of how their broader supply chain and their products will also be able to be aligned with Paris. So that speaks to the targets and the metrics that we're looking to track going forward, which is do you have a net zero target? Do you have an ambitious medium term target? What are the actions and do you have targets around those actions to get there? And lastly, what are you doing with your broader supply chain, whether or not that's the products and services that you buy, but also the products that you sell and how all of those things interact. So that's what I would like to see by 2025 to make, you know, to have all of the companies that we have in our top 50 have a very clear idea of what it means, what net zero and what Paris alignment means for their business and how they're going to work towards, you know, making it all happen fast enough to ultimately reduce emissions in line with the aims of the Paris Agreement, get us to one and a half degrees. You've been listening to Carol Jeremiah and Sybil Dixon. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion which was brought to you by MFS Investment Management. Please remember that you can subscribe to Financial Standard wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm Rachel Allenbeckis, Managing Editor of FS Sustainability. Thanks for listening to this Financial Standard podcast. For more information, visit financialstandard.com.au. Please keep in mind that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider personal circumstances. Reliance should not be placed on any content without further independent financial research and advice.